Um, and, and, and also, I want to say this morning that it's a, a blessing for me and, and my wife, Holly, to be here among people who are running hard after Jesus. Running hard. Uh, that's an encouragement to me. Um, <clears throat> Some years ago, um, a seminary professor in Texas named... Daniel Wallace told the story of, of his son, Andy. One day at school, um, eight-year-old Andy was kicked in the stomach by a, a school bully. Andy developed stomach pains which lasted for weeks. One day, about two months later, Andy left happened to leave the bathroom door open just a little when his mother walked by and she accidentally saw something that really, well, sort of horrified her. She saw that Andy's uh, urine was brown. That very day, she took him to the family doctor and Andy was immediately admitted to Children's Hospital and scheduled for a kidney biopsy. After the biopsy, uh, the parents uh, received devastating news. Andy had something called renal cell carcinoma, a very rare and deadly form of cancer in children. It's so rare in children that Andy's case was the first one reported in the United States in eight years. Andy's kidney was removed he went through grueling tests that probed for any remnants of cancer. Six days of testing produced no trace, for which they were deeply thankful. Over the next several months, uh, he went through chemotherapy, administered mainly as a preventive measure. Andy lost his hair, he lost lots of weight, at one point, this young man weighed 45 pounds. When his twin brother weighed 85 pounds. And Dr. Wallace said that he and his wife became an emotional wasteland during these months. And even admitted anger with God who felt very far away. Dr. Wallace said, and I quote, through this experience, I found that the Bible was not adequate. I needed God in a personal way, not as an object of my study, but as friend, guide, and comforter. I needed, he said, a personal experience of the Holy One. The scriptures were authoritative, the scriptures were nourishing as a guide, but without feeling God, the Bible gave me little solace during this season. I began to examine what had become of my faith, he said. I believed I had depersonalized God so much that when I really needed him, I didn't know how to relate. I longed for God, but found a suffocation of the spirit 
both in my Christian tradition and in my own heart. Now, Dr. Wallace, you understand, was a Bible scholar, one who studied Scripture at a very high level, original languages. But now he found himself asking new questions. He, he found himself seeking the Spirit of God as sustainer, as life giver. In his exhaustion, his stress, his sorrow, he found that his mainly intellectual faith did not sustain him. And he asked, he said, if the spirit did not retire in the first century after inspiring the scriptures, then what, he asked, then what is the spirit doing today? And that's the question I want to ask this morning. What is the Holy Spirit doing today among Christians? My answer here in this lesson is not complete, but it is a beginning, and I'll say some more about this in the, the class that follows the service. But let's begin with becoming a Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For Paul, baptism into Christ is a spirit event. We're baptized in the Spirit and receive the gift of the Spirit. And this event, this baptism into Christ in the Spirit, marks the transition into the new community of God called church, the body of Christ. Through faith in the Messiah, through baptism in the Spirit, God has broken the power of sin and death in our lives and the process of being conformed to the image of Christ has begun. And most of us, many of us in this room, are well down the path of that conforming. To describe the Christian's new state, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, and also the phrase, in the Spirit. These two phrases for him are virtually interchangeable. Being in Christ always means being in the Spirit. In a key passage, Paul declares that Christians are, he says, in the Spirit, and that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Romans 8, verse 9. Furthermore, Paul says, and I quote, God has anointed us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So when one is united with Christ, the spirit becomes the sphere in which the Christian then lives. To be in Christ is to be in the spirit. 
In the New Testament, a primary work of the Spirit is to initiate people into two primary relationships. And this is what I'll focus on this morning. And these two primary relationships are focused on two confessions. The first one is, Jesus is Lord. And the second one is, Abba, Father. Let's notice these two scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, Galatians 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So the spirit, Paul says, enables these two key relationships. Through the spirit, we profess that Christ is Lord. And through the spirit whom God sends into our hearts, we come to know God as Abba. The Spirit is constantly at work relating people to God, to Christ as Lord and to his Father as Abba. And I want to, for a few minutes, look further at each of these two relationships that the Spirit makes possible. First, the Spirit works constantly to lift up Christ and shine, we might say, the spotlight on him as the center of the gospel. The Spirit works to magnify the Son as the way to the Father. As Jesus said of the Spirit in John 16, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He, the Spirit, will glorify me. We could paraphrase it this way. The Spirit draws attention to the Son. In Scripture, the Spirit seems always to be saying, don't, don't look at me so much. Look at the Father and look at His Son. James Packer, um, the great Christian theologian, used the image of a floodlight, a spotlight, to capture this role. Packer said that a well-placed floodlight bathes a building or other object in light, but we're not supposed to focus attention on where the light comes from. So the Spirit, in, in this way, he says, is the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. The Spirit's focus is not to shine the light on the Spirit, but to open up our lives to Christ the Son and to his Father. In fact, the very truth about who Christ is becomes, Scripture says, understandable to us through the deep work of the Spirit. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we have received, he says, the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. 
And then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So second, I'll say that the Spirit works constantly to draw Christ's followers into an intimate relationship with God the Father. I like to call this, using the scriptural, the Aramaic word in scripture, the Abba experience. The Abba experience refers to a new intimacy with God made possible by the death of Jesus and then the ongoing witness of the Spirit in our lives. We've become children of God, all of us who've been baptized into Christ and declared that Jesus is Lord. We've been adopted, Scripture says, into the family of God. And this means we have become, we're told, this sounds kind of amazing, but we're told that we've become heirs of God and even co-heirs with Christ. The Greek term for adoption means literally to be in the son's place. Christians are God's adopted sons and daughters in God's family. This, this image, this metaphor appears in five New Testament passages. Romans 8, uh, twice, Romans 9, Galatians 4, and Ephesians chapter 1. Two of these passages speak of God as Abba, emphasizing a, a kind of depth of relationship, a kind of intimacy with God that uh, Christ's death has made possible. So um, Romans, um, Romans 8, 15 and following says, when we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then the Galatians 4 passage that we've seen, God sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts who calls out, Abba, Father. In both texts, the spirit's crying Abba is the clear sign for Christians that they, that you and I are sons and daughters of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Abba is an Aramaic word. Not a, the New Testament is mostly in Greek, but Abba is a word from the Aramaic language, the language that Jesus himself spoke, that's been brought into the Greek New Testament. This was the language of Jesus. The word was brought into this text by the earliest Christians because Abba was likely Jesus' own characteristic way of praying. It was a term of family intimacy. And it was an intimacy that Jesus experienced in, in deep, deep ways with his father. And so, for example, you recall that line in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, when he says, Abba, Father, he's, he's praying in the, the garden, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. Jesus' own word, own way of addressing his Father. Paul says that Christ, together with the Spirit, 
makes possible our adoption into God's family. He writes to the Galatians, God sent his son that we might receive the full rights, the full adoption as sons. And because of that, he goes on to say, the spirit enables us to call out Abba, Father. It's an astonishing, an astounding Christian truth. That when we become followers of Jesus, we become daughters and sons of the creator, God, the Father. Right alongside Jesus, whom he calls the beloved son. Jesus was a son by birthright. We become God's sons and daughters by adoption into his family. Christ was God's heir we become, so scripture tells us, we become co-heirs with Christ. Amazing. Christ prayed, Abba, Father, and the Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit thus enables us to enter into an Abba relationship with the Creator. The Spirit, Paul says, pours God's love into our hearts. Through the Spirit, the love that the Father shares with and for his beloved Son is now shared with us. And I I must say, I'm simply astonished by that truth. But, But for many of us, Let me say, and I I include myself in this many, many of us, for many of us, the actual experience of this love comes hard and slow, if we're honest. I don't know why all that is, but it seems to me perhaps that harsh and distant earthly fathers sometimes set up in a lot of sons and daughters a deep sense of disapproval and an almost unquenchable hunger for affirmation. This was the overriding quest of the well-known Christian writer, uh, Henry Nowen, who died a number of years ago. And he chronicled this in many of his popular books. Um, A pivotal text for Nowen was the descent of the Spirit upon Jesus at the Jordan River. With the Father's words spoken there, you are my beloved. Everything that Jesus said or did, Nowen argued, came forth from that most intimate spiritual communion. You are my beloved. And he says, Lowen says, we too are invited to that same communion that Jesus lived. That we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, just as he is the beloved son. That we are sent into the world to proclaim the belovedness of all people, just as he was. But Nowen often goes on to say that this identity as the beloved easily slips away from us. 
So life in Christ requires, he says, a constant claiming of our true identity. The question, he says, is not how am I to love God, but rather how am I to let myself be loved by God? And then he says this. He wrote these words to a skeptic late in his life. He said, dear friend, being the beloved is the origin and the fulfillment of the life of the Spirit. Over and over, Henry Nouwen's basic message in pretty much all of his books was the same. You, you are God's beloved. What is the Spirit of God doing today? The Spirit enables us to profess the deep conviction that Christ is Lord. But more. The Spirit is pouring God's love freely into our hearts so that we can experience an Abba relationship with our Father, into whose family we've been adopted. And I well know that for many of us, I think, receiving this love, imbibing it, welcoming it, internalizing it, is an ongoing struggle. We have hard and broken places. We feel, perhaps some of us, many of us, we feel unworthy of such love. We don't measure up to such treatment. Perhaps we've been taught that God doesn't relate to us in such a deeply personal and intimate way. Let me tell you this. Paul says that Christians live in the dispensation of the Spirit. It's where we live. And that there we can behold greater splendor than Moses did. Moses, Scripture says, veiled his face from the Lord's presence when he came down from Mount Sinai. And the temple... The Israelite temple also had a veil shielding people from God's presence. But Paul says that the Spirit of the Lord has removed the veil. Christians can enter the holy place and stand there in the very presence of God. With unveiled faces, he says, They can behold the glory of the Lord and in that presence be changed in their own life from one degree of glory into another. He says, 2 Corinthians 3, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformation through the Spirit includes steady mending of the brokenness and disarray that we bring with us when we come to Christ. And to help us see this, we can picture the church uh, as a kind of hospital. Or maybe to add to that, uh, as also maybe a rehab center. Though, of course, the church is much more than that. 
The fellowship of the Spirit, which is the body of Christ, contains people always, it seems to me, in various stages of healing and growth toward Christ-likeness. Here's, here's the way we can often see it. Some are just being wheeled into the emergency room, fresh from the wreck that has been their lives. Some are just being wheeled out of major life-saving surgery. Some are still in need of strong medicine and intense care. Some, some we see taking their first steps after a season of lengthy incapacitation. Many still need the renewal of their minds, to use Paul's words, including training in the practices and the truths of the Christian faith. Some, some have the flush of health and they're going about their ordinary lives. And some, some are emerging as mature children of God and beginning, as scripture says, to shine like lights in the darkness of the world. I know there are a good many like that in this very church. So the Spirit does healing, mending, transforming, and maturing work in the body of Christ. The Spirit is growing the church, Paul's phrase is, growing the church into the fullness of Christ. We're not there yet. Still a mixed bag, but that's where we're heading, in the power of the Spirit. That's a rich phrase that needs a lot of unpacking, more than I can do here today. So what is the Spirit doing today? Let me say finally that the Spirit continues to fill Christians as they serve the Lord. Paul exhorts believers in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit or maybe a better translation to keep on being filled with the Spirit. The Ephesian disciples are already a temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul tells them in Ephesians 2 that you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Spirit already dwells in the church. Yet the church still needs further filling with the Spirit. Because the Spirit is present and active always in the body of Christ, we can experience, all of us can experience new fillings of the Spirit. This filling can bring deep healing to our lives. This filling can awaken us to fuller dimensions of God's love. This filling can stir fresh new joy and peace this filling can light the fire of God's mission in us in a new way. And Paul can speak about the provision of the Spirit in facing hardship. When we face hardship, we, 
need the filling of the Spirit again. And he speaks of being, in Ephesians 3, speaks of being strengthened with might through his Spirit in your inner being. And let me, let me say, and I'll, I'll talk more about this in the class that follows, we can grow in our openness to the Spirit. We can grow in our attentiveness to the Spirit. Openness to the Spirit is a human variable. We can choose it. We can pursue it. The gift of the Spirit we received in baptism can be more fully received and more richly experienced if we are open to it, if we seek it. The truth is, surely you would join me in thinking that the truth is that we need more of the Spirit's power in order to be Christ's disciples. We need the Spirit to enable a bolder profession of Christ as Lord in our own lives and to others around us. We need we need more of God's love poured into our hearts through the Spirit. I know I do. And Daniel Wallace, when his son Andy nearly died of cancer, he needed a living and intimate relationship with God that only the Spirit could provide. It is the work of the Spirit today to make the truth of Christ and the love of God real and powerful in our own experience. So I close by asking, what is the Spirit doing today? The Spirit is transforming believers into the likeness of the risen Christ with ever-increasing glory. Let me ask you to envision in closing the Spirit as a painter of pictures. The artist's palette holds a wonderful array of colors, but the Spirit's one subject to paint is Christ. The Spirit seeks to paint countless portraits of Christ on countless human canvases. So the Spirit takes the unique human qualities that make you who you are and me who I am, sets us free from our fallenness and begins to transform us into yet another portrait of Christ. That is what the Spirit is doing today. And he's doing it right here in this church.